It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks Michael Sandel, professor of political philosophy at Harvard, what the common good might look like in an age of populist discontents and Donald Trump. I'm not sure that the folks who habituate Davos, or for that matter, mainstream politicians, have fully grasped and, and properly interpreted what lies behind the anger and frustration that led to the populist upheaval. Professor Sandel's explorations of what the common good might look like in modern times came to prominence to students across the world after his course on justice was the first to be put online by Harvard University and viewed millions of times. He's been a BBC Wreath lecturer, consulted by George W. Bush on bioethics, and his latest book is What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets. The common good is the subject we'd like to explore with you. Welcome, Michael. Good to be with you. So I've put it in the framework of Donald Trump and his inauguration as president, but is the common good something that we commonly understand? The problem these days is that the mainstream parties aren't offering a compelling debate about the common good, or for that matter, about big questions of values, justice, equality, and inequality. And I think this has left the way open for Donald Trump and right-wing populists across Europe to occupy the terrain in politics of identity, value, and meaning. And the big challenge for democracy today, I think, is for the mainstream parties to reimagine their public discourse to be less technocratic, more inspiring. And that means engaging big questions of justice, what it means to be a citizen, and how can we reason together about the common good. That sounds like a very reasonable response if I'm sitting in your lecture room at Harvard or enjoying one of your books at, at home. But if I'm a politician, I'm often accused of kind of waffling, of talking about sort of flights of political theory, when really what people want is jobs, it could be security, it's whatever is big on their minds, particularly at that moment. And coming to them and saying, I'm a politician, let me tell you about the common good might not be that appealing. I don't think it's for politicians to tell people about the common good or to lecture at them, but to reimagine the terms of public discourse. One of the reasons that we've failed, that politicians have failed to address competing conceptions even of the common good, is that over the past three or four decades, the mainstream parties have been in the grip of a kind of market faith, the assumption that market mechanisms by themselves can define and can bring about the common good. I think it's a mistake. It's a mistake that goes back to, well, it, in a way it began with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the late 1980s, early 80s, who said that government is the problem and markets are the solution. But the real problem began when they passed from the political scene and were succeeded by center-left politicians, 
Tony Blair in, in Britain, Bill Clinton in the United States, Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. They didn't really challenge this fundamental premise. They moderated but consolidated the market faith. And as a result, we've not really had a serious public debate about where markets serve the public good and where they don't belong. I'm going to come back and test you a little bit on that political thesis in a moment. But I'm talking to you here at Davos. Listeners will be able to hear the, the hubbub and the inevitable slam doors and flutters of paper behind us here at the World Economic Forum. The theme here has been responsible leadership. Let's unpack that, if we could, a bit. From what you've intimated so far, I, I doubt you were cracking open the champagne as the result of Donald Trump's election came in, but he is the president, he is there, and he is you know, bound to observe the Constitution, but otherwise he's bound to follow his, his views and his beliefs. What's responsible leadership in the age of Donald Trump? I think it begins with listening and diagnosing, trying to make sense of what's just happened in this tumultuous political year with Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. I'm not sure that the folks who habituate Davos, or for that matter, mainstream politicians, have fully grasped and, and properly interpreted what lies behind the anger and frustration that led to the populist upheaval. And here I would take issue, Anne, with one suggestion you made. I don't think it's only about jobs. It's certainly about that. But over the past three or four decades, we've had a, a version of global capitalism that has showered most of the rewards on those on top and has left most ordinary citizens feeling disempowered. And at the same time, there's been uh, rising inequality. So while, of course, people are concerned about jobs and income security, I think the problem goes deeper. I think there's a sense that the elites look down with disdain on ordinary people and that the dignity of work is not really respected. So it's about not only about jobs, it's about social esteem and recognition. On whom do we heap the greatest rewards? And what does that say about what counts as a valuable contribution to the common good? I think that's at the heart of the anger and the frustration. Well, let's assume that there is something called the common good that we might like to pursue. Might you be over-indexing, to use a bit of Davos speak that I've just discovered this week, so I, I thought I'd throw it in there, which is your politics would kind of probably have preferred something different from the way that the centre-left moved after Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But we don't really know that governments to the left of that would have delivered something that you could call the common good any more effectively or indeed even have been able to agree on what it is. I think it's not a matter of left versus right. I think that the mainstream parties on both the left and the right have presided over an empty, hollow kind of public discourse over the last few years. What passes for public discourse these days is either narrowly managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or when passion enters, shouting matches. Partisan shouting matches on talk radio and cable television on the floors of Congress. And I think the reason for this emptiness, this hollowness, is that the market-driven way of thinking about the common good avoids engaging directly in politics with debates about values, with 
justice, with what it means to be a citizen, with our mutual obligations as citizens, and with questions of inequality. So that's the terrain, and there may be a center-right way of addressing it and a center-left way of addressing it, but that's the terrain, that's the set of themes that I think is missing. I guess we might have had this conversation last year had we bumped into each other here at Davos or elsewhere. But this year, something very big and to to some people very shocking has happened in the United States. The election of of Donald Trump, the impossible is now a fact of life, at least as, as many people thought of it to be impossible or unpredictable. Do you think that Donald Trump poses particular questions for a philosophy of the common good? I think he has seized on a certain, to my way of thinking, dark and dangerous answer to the question of the common good. And that's a a kind of strident nationalism that has come out in the way he's addressed immigration, as well as trade, but especially immigration. But I think that that the mainstream parties, and especially center-left parties, are largely to blame for creating such a vacuum in terms of uh, discussing larger questions of values and meaning and identity. Barack Obama, really? I mean, was there not quite a lot of occasionally high-flown rhetoric or at least an engagement? You could like it or not like it. But he didn't talk a technocratic language, did he? Well, it's an interesting question. In 2008, in his presidential campaign, his great promise was his inspirational quality, his promise to reinvigorate, morally to reinvigorate the terms of public discourse. But the moral and civic idealism that he stirred so powerfully in the 2008 campaign did not translate, did not carry over into his presidency. And I think I know why. Well, it goes to the 2008 financial crisis and the way he handled the bank bailout. He came in office without any background in finance himself. He was confronted with the financial crisis. And so he turned to economic advisors who were the very same people who in the late 1990s and during the late Clinton administration had, with Republicans, deregulated the financial industry and broken down the the barriers between commercial banking and investment banking and had decided not to regulate derivatives. He brought those same people back. And they advised him in going about a bank bailout that did not hold those responsible to account and did very little to help those who were suffering who had lost their homes or their mortgages. And this, I think, muted his moral voice, the anger and resentment at the bank bailout. He did not articulate to the contrary. He placated, and this cast a shadow over the rest of his presidency and led to a kind of technocratic presidency rather than a transformational one. I could ask you to broaden out a bit from those very interesting reflections on American politics. A, a British politician in the post-war period once said, we campaign in poetry, but we govern in prose. And isn't there a problem for philosophers over the ages? And I know you've also taught and written extensively on Aristotle, on, on Kant, and the, the other greats, the other greatest hits of, of political philosophy down the ages, that the good life, the common good are very hard to square with delivering in the moment for citizens in democracies or indeed in in autocracies or other political systems. I think governing, especially democratic governance, requires a creative mixture of poetry and prose. And I think one of the great mistakes of mainstream politicians, and I'm afraid President Obama, despite his promise and his enormous talent, he fell prey to this. 
there was too much prose and too little poetry in the actual governance. And I don't mean by poetry mere rhetoric, mere adornment. I mean bringing to bear big moral and civic ideals to governance itself, to the framing of policy choices. This is where poetry and prose come together. And when it came to making the case for his, his health program, he largely found himself speaking in technocratic terms. Of, he spoke of bending the, the cost curves in the out years. When I heard him say that, I began to worry about whether anything lasting could really be achieved because to create a policy even such as healthcare, now that's policy, that involves nitty-gritty details, but it does require making a moral argument that as fellow citizens we have certain obligations to one another, this gets back to the common good, and that includes seeing that no one goes without health care because of an inability to pay. So moral argument in politics is not mere rhetorical adornment, it's not mere poetry. I think it's part of the, the heart of, of governing and the mainstream parties have failed to do that effectively. If we were to look now, and, and let, let's factor in Europe, not only uh, Brexit in Great Britain, some people see it as simply an, an analogy of a, yet another outbreak of populism. Some say, well, hang on, this is a great exercise in democracy where the popular will came out and said, actually, we don't agree with what you up there are doing. But you also have other, you know, perhaps more worrying phenomena than the, the, the rise of Marine Le Pen in, in France and to some extent the far right in Germany. What's the philosophical response to this? And are there people that you look to, whether in European philosophy in the past or indeed in the Anglo-American tradition, that you think, you know, here's the book I'm going to take down when I'm feeling a bit lost in today's world? The philosophical response is not altogether separate from what I see as the proper political response. So just as poetry and prose, I think, need to be connected, so do philosophy and politics. We need, here's one way of, of putting it, maybe you'll disagree, Anne, we need a more philosophical politics, or to put it another way, we need to invite democratic citizens to engage in public debate about big questions of justice, equality and inequality, what it means to be a citizen. Now, these are ideas that uh, go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle and Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and John Stuart Mill. But I think when our politics become, and our way of thinking and talking and arguing about politics becomes captive to economic questions, to technocratic issues, to a market-driven way of conceiving the public good, it creates an emptiness, a vacuum, a void of larger meaning, and that void inevitably will be filled, and it has been filled, I think, darkly by the strident nationalism, which is an attempt to, it's a reach for meaning and identity and belonging that is so far filling this void. And I see that as the danger. That's the, it's, it's that empty public discourse that has given rise to the danger of right-wing populism. But I do wonder, I mean, you come back to the market as almost like the original sin in some way. You know, in your Garden of Eden, it would look a little bit different. And I wonder whether you're giving enough weight and whether a lot of people on the centre-left, or Americans call it, it, it liberals in a slightly different sense to Europeans, but I think we know what we mean, that we may not be giving enough weight to the fact that people are quite keen to make their voices heard and that there is a tension between saying, well, this is not good for you and we should you know, have a philosophy that is more rounded and simply the desire that they have to throw the rotters out as they see it. That's also democracy. It's a very important philosophical principle. I agree with that. I very much agree that voice 
uh, and the voice of ordinary people is right at the heart of democracy. And we've just seen with, uh, with Brexit and the election of Trump and maybe other things that will come to pass in European uh, voting this year, we've seen a, a strong uh, expression of democratic voice. Unfortunately, it's been channeled, I think, in a dark and dangerous direction because the mainstream parties have been so in the, the grip. Now, my, my argument is not, to be clear, not against markets. The problem is that in recent decades, we've drifted from having market economies to becoming market societies, where market thinking and market values begin to crowd out moral and civic, non-market moral and civic ideals that I think should figure more directly in our public discourse. Where does this leave your thinking? We've talked a lot about democracies and their, their tensions or even fragmentation at the moment, but we're in a week uh, talking here at the World Economic Forum where President Xi, Xi Jinping, the, the Chinese leader, got a very positive response here. A lot of people seem to think he was filling a bit of a, a, a gap on market liberalism, at least in globalisation, that Donald Trump had left. Is there a danger that we overpraise authoritarians, not to put too fine a point on it, or possibly even dictators, who come bearing sort of garlands of globalisation, perhaps behind them are able to sort of carry on non-accountable, not democratic, not really building a side of society that you would call the common good. Yes, there is a danger of allowing the embrace of markets to be confused with democracy. And that's a, a confusion into which we slide too easily today. And that's because there's a temptation to think that the version of market capitalism that uh, we've seen unfolding in the last few decades is itself a way of empowering citizens, of making us free, of allowing our voices to be heard. But that's a mistake. Allowing our voices to be heard only as consumers, that's not democracy. That's markets. That's buying and selling. But there is more to a common life than buying and selling and consuming and trading goods together. And that's to bring out people's sense of shared democratic citizenship. And that's what politics should be about. I was just about to tease you and say, there you go on markets again. Come back to, come back to President Xi. Come back to China. Because there's sometimes a sense, perhaps in, in this week, a big argument late at night around the conference that some people were always saying, well, at least we haven't got American presidents standing up for globalization, free trade, but we have got President Xi. Are we falling too readily into that trap of praising authoritarianism? Yes, but I think uh, the example that you've given shows how the enthusiasm for global capitalism seems to forgive all sins and see, seems to enable us to uh, leave democracy behind. Now, that's a problem in the response you just described at Davos to President Xi, but it's also part of the larger point I've been making that those of us who live in democratic societies in the West have also been confusing the embrace of global capitalism with the work of democracy. And that's a mistake that we're making. It's a mistake that goes beyond what folks are saying here. Did, however, give rise to the only good pun of the week, I think, which was an après cocktail. <laughs> Let's go back, if we could, to your influences as a young thinker uh, by Greek philosophers. 
You've scattered a few names through our, our discussion so far, but uh, who, are you, who are you going to take? I mean, who are on your desert island with you as, as guides to our turbulent times from the philosophical canon? Well, as someone who wants to bring philosophy to bear on the world in which we live, I would go all the way back to Socrates, who was the first political philosopher in the Western tradition. And what strikes me about Socrates is he didn't uh, lecture from a podium. He didn't even write any books. He wandered the streets of Athens, down to the port of Piraeus, even in Athens, and he engaged ordinary citizens in argument, in deliberation, questioning their assumptions. And some said he corrupted the youth of Athens. The corruption consisted in asking people and provoking people to think, to think about the conceptions, the visions of justice, and of the common good underlying their ordinary, unreflective opinions. That's the role I think philosophy should play today. Not to preach, but to invite and to challenge and provoke democratic citizens to bring more directly into public life debates about the just society and the common good. Michael Sandell, thank you very much. If you've any thoughts on what you've heard, then do send them our way, radio at economist.com or via Twitter at Economist Radio. Don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist, looking at the aftermath of the inauguration and much else. You can find us online at economist.com. In Davos, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.